Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, professor of Christian ethics and dean of the faculty also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today with a guest, a friend of mine, a friend of Biola by the name of Abdu Murray. He's a speaker, he's a writer, works with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, has been a lawyer and a former Muslim, the author of a new excellent book I had a chance to endorse called Saving Truth. Abdu, thanks for coming on the show. Guys, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. We want to jump into the book, but would you be willing to share your story as a former Muslim, your conversion story to Christ with us a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I was, uh, you know, there's the two main branches of Islam are the Sunnis and the Shiites, and um, I was raised as a Shiite, and I was pretty serious about that. They're largely the same in terms of their belief systems and even their practices, some minor differences, and usually it's really political uh, in terms of the differences. But um, I thought Islam was true, and I thought I had this crazy belief that people should believe true things and not false things. So I went and made it my business to talk to people about, who, if they were not Muslims, about why they were wrong and Islam was right. Um, and, and in the area I grew up in, it's very diverse now, very, very diverse now. But largely then, it was sort of, um, it was sort of homogeneously white, uh, as it were. There was some, a few dashes of olive oil sprinkled in the sea of rice, as it were. But... Uh, <laughs> For the most part, it was it was white, and which means either Jewish or mostly actually Christian, nominally so. In, in the Detroit area, in a in a suburb of Detroit, I was born in Detroit. Actually, had lots of family in the Dearborn area, which is a really large Arab population. But in the suburb I grew up in at that point, now it's really diverse. But then it was it's called Troy. Uh, Michigan, and um, it was uh, pretty white back then, although I did have some, some brown friends, which was great. Um, but uh, for the most part, uh, he had people who were like, nominally Christian. Um, they would say they're Christian, but what, what that meant to them, who knows? Um, well, I, I wanted to find out, because I thought if I could show them that their belief system was wrong, um, then I could, once the vacuum is created, so to speak, I could actually rush in and give them why Islam was true. So um, I would ask them, why are you a Christian? And they would say, uh, I don't know, I'm a Presbyterian because I go to the Presbyterian church on Christmas and Easter, so I'm a Presbyterian? And they would actually sometimes actually answer that way, like with that little lilt at the end. Because I'm thinking to myself, do you even know? Was that a question or an answer? Cause I'm not sure you actually know yourself. <laughs> uh, um, so then I would follow up and say, are you telling me that you, know, you trust your eternal soul to a, to a, to a religion that someone else believes? Have you thought about it at all yourself? And usually the answer was no. Um, so then I would begin to launch into my attacks, you know, saying that, you know, the Trinity makes no sense. Uh, the Bible is untrustworthy and shouldn't be believed. Um, the cross is the ultimate insult to God. And how could Jesus die on a cross at the hands of the very sinners he created if, in fact, he is God? Um, and I got largely no response back or very little response, except from a couple of people who did know what they were talking about. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, along the journey, when some Christians actually responded and gave me some resources to look into, some of the things they handed me were evidence that demands a verdict. Nice. Um, and, uh, and more than a carpenter. And I actually heard the uh, more than a carpenter on tape. Actually, wow. For, I didn't read it first. I heard it on tape. That tells you how long ago this happened. Um, and uh, then I heard Ravi Zacharias on the radio uh, one time, and I heard Greg Kokel on the radio as well. Um, someone had actually given me a, a copy of some stuff with these guys on it. I'm like, oh, you mean actually intelligent people actually believe this stuff? 
Um, so that began the journey. Um, but the long story short is what I realized was not only is the, the Christian faith historically, uh, philosophically and, and um, verifiable, but it actually satisfied an existential need in me. Because um, for a Muslim, you know, you have this phrase, Allahu Akbar, and this phrase means God is greater. Now, you usually hear it in the context of something bad happening, but for the most part, most Muslims say Allahu Akbar as a, as a, as a, as a prayer of praise um, or as a statement of God's help. We want God's help. So if they get good news, God is greater. If they get bad news, God is greater than their circumstances. So God's greatness is the most important aspect of Islam. Um, and I thought the Trinity, Incarnation, and the Cross all insulted God's greatness. It was when I began to look into these things, and people showed me some of these resources I mentioned, among others, that I began to see that the very things I thought insulted God's greatness were the very things that demonstrated His greatness, um, uh, culminating in the Cross, really, when I saw that if God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, and he would do so in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. And you only find that uh, in the historic cross. Uh, so if God exists, if God is truly great, then God must be the God of the Bible. And that's when I gave my life to him, when all the things that I wanted to be true in Islam were actually true in Christianity. Abdu, how did your family and some of your friends respond? Well, uh, they did not throw a party, I'll, I'll tell you that, um, <laughs> without going into too much uh, personal detail, because, you know, it's interesting about this question, and it's, it's, it's important because I think people need to understand that when you talk to somebody from a different worldview, you're not just asking them to change their academic opinion about something. You're asking them to change their entire worldview, and maybe even their view of themselves. Um, that's why it's important. But without getting into too much personal detail, because obviously my story isn't just my story. There are other people involved in that story, people who I love dearly. Um, while it didn't go well, um, uh, there's been tremendous reconciliation and closeness and strength um, in our family. In fact, I was just telling someone recently that you know the strength of a family bond when you can go through pretty much the worst thing that could happen to a family especially an Arab family where tradition is so important, and still come out as strong and, and loving each other. Uh, and though things were pretty tough, um, we have a good relationship now. And um, uh, my kids are close to the, everyone who, who, who's in my family now and all that. But there were changes. There were differences. There were things that are, that are that, you know, lack comfort, and there's some, 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 some tough parts. But uh, I can say not only were they fixed in, in large respect, but they've been worth it to go through. Abdu, tell us a little bit about your specific ministry with uh, Ravi Zacharias. Yeah. So um, as a North American director, my, my, my job uh, administratively and leadership-wise is to help set the pace and the ministry goals for North American region and, and, and in some senses South America as well. But I get to see the world and travel all over the place for this job, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, obviously, I do a lot of talk, a lot of speaking and writing on Islam because of my background. But what I found myself branching out into more um, is actually um, questions of culture, philosophical issues, um, and find myself, my bread and butter, the thing I love to do the most is open forums on uh, universities, secular universities. Um, so I think that my ministry generally tends towards uh, bridging the head and the heart 
Um, RZIM's goal is to help the thinker to believe and the believer to think in that order. So we're largely evangelistic, and then we're equipping, but we believe the equipping has to happen, because if believers think, then thinkers can believe, uh, because believers can reach the thinkers. So if we go into these tough settings like um, university campuses, do the open forums, and uh, take questions from, from skeptics, but also, uh, I do some debates. I like to do, to do a debate here and there. And um, uh, also, to uh, RZIM has blessed me with the ability to be in front of people of varying, varying audiences, whether it's international or it's like leaders of uh, countries or Congress people or you know policymakers and shift and, and people who shift the thinking of entire nations. It's been, it's been, frankly, it's been awesome in the true sense of the word. I've, I've literally been awed by the places that God has allowed me to go, uh, largely because Ravi's already made these inroads and these doors. Yeah, g- given your background, Abdu, uh, and the amount of time that you spend uh, mm-hmm. in ministry among Muslims, uh, I, I would, I would expect that you'd have a pretty good sense of the state of Islam today. How, how would you summarize yep. that? Well, I think it's diverse depending on where you're talking about it at. So ironically, what you're seeing, and in fact, I'm actually doing a, 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 an event uh, soon on the Unbelievable podcast, or the radio show, I should say, with a former Muslim who's now an atheist. And we're going to talk about why she became an atheist and why I became a Christian and engage in this dialogue. Atheism is actually becoming a bit of an epidemic uh, in, in, in the Middle East because I think people are seeing ISIS and they're seeing other radical um, uh, movements within Islam, and they're saying, if this is real Islam, I don't want anything to do with it. But they've also never been exposed to credible Christianity. So to them, their options are Islam or nothing. Um, and so they don't, because they never really thought Christianity was a viable option. But you're also seeing tremendous moves um, by some of the reports we get from some people we work with in various parts of the world, um, uh, in Egypt, in uh, Iran, in other parts of the world that are predominantly Muslim, you're seeing huge numbers of people come to faith in Christ. Now, they're remaining underground because of you know, governmental pressures, but you're seeing uh, a lot of shift. I think Islam is in a stage right now. Um, to say it's in crisis is probably too strong of a word, but it's definitely not a comfortable place. You're seeing a lot of shifts where people are either becoming agnostic or secular uh, uh, or uh, atheistic, or you're seeing people come to Christ um, in large numbers. So Islam's undergoing a, a pretty good shift. Now, if you were to see people here, you might think, well, it's not shifting at all. And part of the reason is because um, immigrants and first and second generation uh, children of immigrants are taught not to assimilate, not in terms of constitutionalism or, you know, democracy. They mean, you know, spiritually. Don't become one of them. You can enjoy and uh, the rights and privileges allowed to you by the U.S. Constitution, but don't become one of them. And so they're actually more resistant in some ways than people in the Middle East are, which is uh, strange and ironic, but that's how it is. So there's a, there's a, a lot of shift. There's a lot of reason for thinking that God is moving tremendously. I'll do help our listeners understand a little a little bit more about Islam today, um, we, we, especially the the radical element. Uh, we, we hear there are two I think two different ways of viewing the radical element within Islam. One is that, that it's an aberration of the genu, of the genuine item, uh, and the the other is to say no, it's it's intrinsic to Islam just at a higher level of commitment. Wh- yeah. Which of those, if 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 either? Uh, would you say are are more accurate 
Or, or is there something in between those? Mm, you know, I, I would tend to say, in one sense, it's something in between. It's so, I've been asked this question a lot, you know, is Islam an inherently peaceful religion? It sort of uh, depends on what you mean by religion and what you mean by peaceful. Um, uh, I guess if you were to say, if the religion is determined by what, how the majority of the adherents believe or act, then yeah, it's mostly peaceful because most, most Muslims have no intention of hurting another person um, for political or even religious reasons. Um, but if you mean by religion the foundational statements in the documents or the actions of the founder, well then you have another issue because it's a little more problematic then. Um, and why I say problematic instead of dogmatically it's always bad all the time is that um, Islam has within its pages, um, uh, whether it's the Quran or the Hadith, you have some statements that are laudable, some things that I think we can actually agree with. But then you have some statements that you really, really can't, and there's no getting around them, um, yeah, as hard as we might try to. Uh, for example, the Quran itself says that, we are, that, that Muslims are to fight unbelievers wherever they find them and let them find a new hardness and actually strike them above the neck and, uh, until they feel themselves subdued and pay the tax and all these things. And then it goes on to say why. It says because they, they believe these horrible things. In other words, you, you, you can act with animosity towards people because of their beliefs, not out of self-defense, but because of their beliefs. Um, I think that's a very serious issue to wrestle with. And what's interesting is that there are, there are Muslims who are recognizing this. When you look at something like the Clarion Project, uh, which is run by Muslims uh, and non-Muslims alike, they're beginning to see that there is a problem and they're willing to address it. Uh, so there are more and more voices that are actually pointing out that there's a problem. And there might even be an inherent problem based on the words that are in the uh, sacred texts of Islam. So I would say it's somewhere in between. There are parts of Islam that can justify peace, but there are parts of Islam that can easily justify violence. Now, that's not the same thing as looking at um, the Old Testament and seeing some of the commands where God had given the Israelites um, uh, commands to uh, commit acts of violence. Those were episodic, and they were context-specific. The problem in the Quran is that a lot of these things, and what you have to deal with, is that a lot of these things are normative commands that don't know a sort of time boundary. Abdul, let me ask you one more question about Islam, and then I want to shift to your book, Saving Truth. I, I had a student in my high school class. I was teaching at a private school, theology, apologetics, worldview. He's a Muslim, and he came to Christ. He was afraid to tell his parents, and he said three things. He said, understanding the love of God in Scripture. He said, the love that Christians, how they treated him. And then third, it was that there's actually evidence that Christianity is true. Is that indicative of what you hear from many Muslims who come to Christ, or what are the reasons they often cite when they become believers? At least two of those reasons are, are, are normative, um, or are, I wouldn't say normative, they're, they're prevalent. Um, it's the love of Christians, which gets them thinking about, um, what does this Bible actually have to say? And I'll tell you the reason why is because uh, Muslims have just as many stereotypes of Christians as Christians have of Muslims. And one of those stereotypes is rampant individualism, a non-caring for community, and this sort of like me, me, me kind of a feel. And when they come across Christians who break that mold, it shatters a lot of things. And they begin to think, maybe this is actually not so crazy after all, which, of course, Jesus actually said, you will know them by how they love one another. You see that, and it's, it's, it's sort of like worldview-shaking almost. So that's, a, that's an intro. But every Muslim, I would say, also comes to grips with 
they have to, in their mind, get, get, get that veracity of the scriptures down, the evidence for the Bible. So the love of a Christian plus the rationale behind the Christian faith and the backup, uh, those two things, I think, I wouldn't go so far as to say they're universally the case, but I think that they're dominant. That's so helpful. You're basically saying love and truth, which is the formula we see in Scripture <laughs> universally. Indeed. It really is. Yep. Hey, let's yep. shift to your new book, Saving Truth, which is so uh-huh. excellent. Tell us two things. Number one, what is the heart of the book about, and why did you write it now? Sure. Um, so the heart of the book is about the fact that we live in a post-truth culture that doesn't so much say that everything is relative in terms of truth, that everything's subjective, but actually is saying that there is an objective truth, but my preferences and my feelings matter more. So if the truth lines up with my preferences and feelings, great, but if it happens to contradict my preferences and feelings, I'll either lie about it or I'll ignore it altogether. So I think the reason, uh, the heart of the book is to say, how do you actually offer the value of clarity and truth to a culture that values confusion and preferences. How do you actually do that? And I go about some ways of doing that. Um, And the reason why I wanted to write it now is because, you know, in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries named post-truth as its word of the year. And post-truth is a, a mindset that elevates preferences and feelings over facts and truth. And I think this is absolutely accurate. When you look at the political realm, when you look at the social realm, when you look at the sexual realm, when you look at just personal interaction uh, with people, this is what's happening in our day. And I think this is timely because it's going to come to a head, and I think relatively soon, where preferences matter more than truth and people's preferences are going to clash. The arbiter that decides between us will no longer be truth because truth is subordinated. What will decide between us will be power, and that's a dangerous place to go. So, Abdu, it's, it seems to me that uh, we've been, ab- we've been <clears throat> abandoning truth for millennia. Uh, mm. Paul predicts that in Romans 1, that you know, people know the truth and suppress it. Um, mm-hmm. So, what, I mean, what's, what's new about the way people abandon truth today as opposed to the way it's been done in the past? Oh, well, I think it's more overt now. Um, in, 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 in the past, I think it was, you needed divine revelation to sort of reveal to us that we're, we're post-truth people. Uh, but when you look back at the Garden of Eden, in fact, I think um, Paul is just telling us a, 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 a statement of the human condition. Um, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the cool of the day, literally the truth incarnate, um, or the source of all truth, and he said, don't eat of this one tree, uh, because you'll die. And then they basically forsook that, not because their, the truth mattered, but because the truth didn't matter as much as their preferences. The truth was they were supposed to be with God. Their preferences were, were to be God. So we already see preferences mattered more than truth, and that's just a human condition. And so the seeds in the garden have blossomed into the full, full-blown post-truth tree we see today. Um, I think what's different about it now, though, is that it's, it's brazen. Um, we're willing to say things despite the facts to the contrary. Um, when we see facts like uh, people are far more likely to commit suicide after sex reassignment surgery, um, which suggests to us a couple of things, one of which may be we need to you know, sort of uh, change our way we view people who have sex reassignment surgery, but maybe it's that it doesn't actually help uh, under a fixed underlying problem. That's ignored, and we're willing to just run rampant right over it and say, no, 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 we have to give people full vent to their preferences. Uh, I think that's what's happening, and it's actually happening in the halls of learning where clarity used to be a virtue. 
So I think that's the difference now. It's not that we're doing anything different than we used to. It's just that now we're being brazen about it. In the book, you tie truth to questions like sexuality, gender, and identity. Can you make that connection for us? Sure, absolutely. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus says that if you know the truth, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He links truth to freedom. He links those two things together. Um, I think we've gone away from um, what the truth about sexuality is, what the truth about identity and gender actually is, because we want freedom. Um, and what we have envisioned in our minds is that freedom knows no bounds, that we can do, say, think, act, or even be whatever we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want. Well, that's not actually freedom. That's autonomy. And autonomy, as you guys both know, comes from two Greek roots, autos meaning self and nomos meaning law. You are a law unto yourself when you're autonomous. And if you're a law unto yourself, well, then you're not accountable to anyone, certainly not to me or anybody else whose preferences you might not like. Um, Well, that knows no boundaries. But truth, by definition, has boundaries. It excludes that which is false. That's the first thing. But truth always has boundaries. And so freedom, if truth and freedom are linked, and I think they are, then freedom itself has to have boundaries. And if it has boundaries, I mean, uh, you think about um, uh, uh, Chesterton once said that you may think you're free to draw a giraffe with a short neck only to find you're not free to draw a giraffe at all. Um, Truth is limited by facts. And um, sexuality, therefore, has to be examined in the light of facts And I also think in the light of human experience of what's good about biblical sexuality or gender identity or even faith in science and these various things. So truth has boundaries. Freedom necessarily has to have boundaries if it's linked to truth. And therefore, the things that we want to be free to express have to be bound up in uh, the boundaries of truth itself. Abdu, I've become convinced that the primary question people are asking about Christianity is not, is it true, but is it good? Meaning, why are Christians such bigots is how people see it. Yeah. No, nobody says they don't want freedom, but based on our worldview, we have a different understanding of what freedom entails. And you're saying freedom is tied to truth. Mm-hmm. My question is, how do we make that a captivating idea that people understand that they see as good and then ultimately true? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. And I think there's two ways to do it. There's sort of a via negativa way to look at it, where you actually look at it and say, let's take a look at unbounded freedom, where there are no limits. Does that actually work? And this is an important thing for our culture today, because we're extremely pragmatic. You know, we say, believe, uh, if it works for you, then, you know, you use it, kind of a thing. Well, the reality is, is unbounded autonomy just doesn't work. Um, It betrays our sense of reason. It betrays our sense of accountability, and it betrays our sense of human value. There's no way to actually have a sense of human value, uh, and I think it's a progression. So I would say that first we have to show that it doesn't work. I mean, you think about the fact that if I were to uh, um, uh, have a certain preference, let's say it's a sexual preference, or let's say it's just a religious preference, I think one way is the only way, and someone else says, no, 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 they're all equally valid, well, then you automatically exclude me because I think only one way is valid. And your attempt to say that all ways are valid excludes my way. So there's no way around this. So it betrays reason. Um, there's a number of ways in which you can see this. I mean, like I said, if, if, uh, if autonomy 
is true. If, if that's the way it actually works, that we have the freedom to do whatever we want, and preferences matter more than truth, then when my autonomy clashes with somebody else's autonomy, and truth is no longer important, the, the determiner between us will be power. And that's where we're going to get despotism, and that's where we're going to get actual enslavement. So I think the first way is to show that autonomy will lead to chaos, and it will lead ultimately to enslavement. But the second thing, I think, is to say, show that freedom linked to truth actually leads to flourishing, to human flourishing, and um, I think the, the flowering of human dignity. Um, I think of it, for example, when it comes to uh, sexuality, as an example. We have this autonomy with these little machines we laughingly call phones to look at anything we want, whenever we want. And now we're giving these machines names and we're calling out to them. We've humanized machines so that we can dehumanize people um, and make them objects of our desire. But everyone's got their autonomy. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they're hurting themselves because we think that freedom means to do whatever you want, whenever you want. We've lost that sense of what it means to be human and the inherent dignity that human beings have. And I think that if we would capture that, then we'll see what true freedom actually is. Freedom isn't just the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want. I think freedom, biblically speaking, is the ability to do what you want in accordance with what you should, which is the moral, the, the moral object, objective reality, based on what you are. And I think what we are is creatures made in God's image. Because if we are just can do whatever we want, then we're like amoeba or other, you know, sort of multicellular animals as well, but we're just basically animals or com complex computer machines. I think that's a problem. Abdu, I'm sitting here saying amen so many times in my mind because mm -hmm. my dad just hammered home to me growing up where he mm -hmm. would say, he'd say, son, freedom is not doing what feels good or whatever you want, but living according to God's design, having the capacity to do what is right. And that's essentially what you're saying. I think that's such a good takeaway. Let me ask you one last question then, and sure. then we'll wrap up. Give us one practical takeaway, something we can just run with to start making a difference in light of how much confusion there is about truth today. Mm, I think that Christians need to be people of truth. If I were to say one practical takeaway is don't, uh, this is going to sound almost petty when I say this, but it's very important. Don't click share. Don't click like on something that just happens to fit your narrative of what you think the fact should be or make the other side look as bad as possible. If we're to confront a post-truth culture, we have to be people of impeccability when it comes to wanting and spreading the truth. And if we are going to get the post-truth speck out of our brother's eye, we need to be careful as Christians to keep the post-truth log out of our own. Abdu, that is not petty at all. I think that's wonderful advice because there's such a temptation to do the very thing that you're mentioning. I saw a leader, leader this week, someone I really respect, whom you would know, he tweeted something out and somebody corrected him. He just, and he retweeted and said, hey, I was wrong about this. I own it. Thanks for pointing it out. I thought, wow, what a small yet powerful way to care about truth. And I think that's essentially what you're saying. Indeed. Abdu, your new book, Saving Truth, is outstanding. I hope our listeners will get it, study it, share it with a friend, blog about it, do a book review for you. It's so timely. Thanks for your courage. Thanks for speaking truth. And we're thrilled about the opportunities that God has given you with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And just pray that you keep having the courage and boldness and, and health that God has given you. Thanks so much uh, for coming on the show, Abdu. It was a real pleasure to be with you guys, and thanks for all the good work that you guys do as well. Thanks so much. 
this has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Abdu Murray, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.